Are you working on a health goal? Maybe you're training for a race or just trying to get back to the gym. (laughs) Maybe you're slugging around that Stanley cup trying to get that water in or you're working on your sleep. When I lead goal setting workshops, almost everyone names a health goal as one of their top three most important goals for the year. So get ready, get ready because in this episode, I sit down with Dr. Ryan McHugh, my hubby, and we discuss the thought-provoking book, Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity by Peter Atea. And in it, Atea uncovers the secrets to living a long and fulfilling life. And in discussing it, Ryan and I dive into topics such as the limitations of modern medicine and the importance of aligning health goals with purpose. We also uncover some practical strategies for exercise, nutrition, and sleep. So grab your favorite pen because we are going to discover how small changes can make a big impact on your well-being. Let's do this. Do you want to feel less scattered and more focused, but the idea of goal setting sounds like adding more pressure to your already pressure-filled life? If so, welcome to the Plan Goal Plan Podcast. I'm Danielle McGew. I'm a professor, mom, planner addict, and recovering overachiever. After years of hustle and grind, I was tired of trying harder. I was ready to try easier. At the intersection of research, practice, and play, I found a purposeful path to planning and goal setting that is fun, simple, and sustainable. If you're ready to try easier, if you're ready to make memories and do meaningful work, grab a pen. I will equip you with tools and practices to clarify purpose, reclaim time, and achieve goals playfully and lightly. Let's get started. Y'all, I am so excited. Ryan is back on the podcast. Dr. Ryan McGue, my husband, thinker extraordinaire, book reviewer. (laughs) I have him here again. And today I'm really excited. We are going to be talking about a book that has, it feels like everyone's talking about this. So we are going to talk about the book, Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity, by Peter Atea. And like I said, he's been everywhere. I listened to a podcast with him with Adam Grant. I think he's been on Tim Ferriss's podcast. He's been on the Huberman podcast. And now we are going to talk about him. (laughs) So um, Ryan, thank you so much for reading the book and taking the time to share with us. So hi. Hi, this is fun. Usually I read books and nobody wants to talk to me about them. So this is great. Yes. So you've read the book, you've listened to Peter Atea talk to quite a few different people. If you had to summarize some of his biggest takeaways, what are the things that we should learn from him? What should we take down, take notes on? Hit us up. Sure. What I think makes this one maybe a little different from other books on health or longevity, certainly this is different from the kinds of books I typically read and would talk about with you on here is his shtick is really that modern medicine, the kind of medicine that we have available to us when we go to the hospital or or ER or whatever, is really good at certain things and not so good at other things. And in fact, it's gotten so good at treating acute illnesses, think stuff like COVID or, or whatever, that those are no longer the things that kill most of us that we live longer because those things, you know, we have good technology for that. But surprisingly, modern medicine really hasn't gotten that much better at kind of big long-term chronic diseases. 
So it's really good at helping us with things that kill people quickly, but not so good at helping with those slow killers. And so the four that he talks extensively about in the book are heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, and neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, and he says that if you live in like a wealthy country, those are the things that are much more likely to get you because, again, modern medicine can take care of the, the quick acute things. But these things that creep up on us over the course of years, it, you know, it can prolong life, but ultimately hasn't done much to eliminate these. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this book with you and share it on the podcast is because, well, one, when people are setting goals, so if people are setting New Year's resolutions, almost always there's exercise, diet, goals right in there. But, you know, I really like to think about how do we set goals with a focus on our well-being. So when we're thinking about health-related goals, I like this idea of valuing longevity and not just the quantity of our years, but the quality of our years, which I think Atea really focuses on. So when, when people are starting health goals, when they're thinking about their health goals, and if they want to have a focus on longevity, on quality of life, where should they start? This is another place where his approach to medicine, I think, is a little bit different than most of what I see or read when people talk about health. And so rather than focus on like curing diseases or treating diseases, it's about treating people. And so the answer to that question is going to look a little bit different based on the person setting the goal. One thing that he does that I think is really interesting and a little different from, I don't know, any other advice I've heard out there is he talks a lot about what he calls the marginal decade, which is sort of the last decade of people's life. And for most people, that decade is spent in, in pretty sharp decline in a variety of ways in terms of their ability to do the things they want to or to do the things that they used to be able to do. And so a lot of the current medical focus is about prolonging life, especially during that last decade, but it doesn't really address like the, the lost quality of life. And so if, if the goal for most treatments is to lengthen life, his idea is that the goal should be to lengthen life, but to ensure that, that all of those added years can be spent doing the things that are important to you. And so he asks people, apparently asks his patients and clients when he works with them to, to come up with the things they want to be able to do for the rest of their life. And that list is going to look different for different people, right? But it, it, it's not like running marathons or something like that, although it could be. But for a lot of people, it's about, I want to live into my 90s and I want to be able to like get down on the floor and play with my great-grandchildren. Or I want to be able to live independently for, for the entirety of my life. I never want to be in assisted care, whatever it might look like. But the idea is that each person needs to kind of do that calculus on their own. And why I thought maybe this book makes sense with the podcast is because it really aligns health with purpose. And so, you know, he uses the, the metaphor of, of the Titanic, right? And he said, the goal here shouldn't be having better lifeboats. It should be having sort of better, you know, radar, GPS, so that we change the course long before we ever get near the icebergs, right? You're avoiding these diseases that, that really affect the quality of life. 
you're maintaining the physical ability to do the things that excite you personally, that lend you purpose personally. And so it's really about what are the steps you can take when you're in your 30s, 40s, and 50s to ensure that your 60s, 70s, and 80s can be spent in ways that that align with your purpose. I love that. I know that one of the things that I'll ask myself when I'm setting goals and something that I'll ask you know, my clients when I'm working with them around planning and goal setting is, you know, where do you want to be when you're 80? And while I think it's important to also consider the present sort of in tension with the future, right? Like I really like to kind of move back and forth between, okay, where are you now? What would you just like to do in the next three months? But also like holding, where do you want to be at 80? And so I really like this approach to thinking about health thinking about diet and exercise and sleep habits and our emotional well-being in terms of, you know, where do we want to be when we're 80 years old or 90 years old? And how do we start now? You and I are in our early 40s. Like how in our early 40s can we cultivate habits and practices that are going to sustain us in our 80s? And I think that that's a lovely way of thinking about it. And I love this like the way that you phrased it, that he thinks about health in relationship to purpose and always kind of connecting those two. So it's summertime. I do think that this is like this summertime pool trips amps up people's thoughts about exercise. According to Ateo, right? Like he he wouldn't really care about how we look at the pool. He's he's interested in, you know, what our goals are at 90, which maybe we want to still be going to the pool at 90. But what are his thoughts on exercise if some of my listeners are working on establishing a good exercise habit throughout the summer? What are some things that they could do around exercise now that would support them when they're 80? I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't think, as you said, he cares much about how people look in their bathing suits. But if how you look in your bathing suit prompts you, gives you like 10% more motivation to start exercising, I think he'd love that. His big approach to exercise, and he actually thinks exercise is the single most important thing people can do to improve longevity and to ensure that, particularly in those later years, people can do the things they want to do. And he spends a lot of time, the book is actually very technical in a lot of places, talking about like the rates at which muscle mass and strength and and VO2 max, the sort of ability of your body to take in and process and use oxygen how they decline over time. And because of that, how you need to really try to bolster those things again in your 30s, 40s, and 50s, so that even though there's going to be some natural decline, you've put yourself in a position where you can endure some of that and and you know maintain a small loss, but still have a strong enough foundation that you can weather that. And so for exercise, he talks about really three things, cardiovascular, strength, and stability. And so basically, yeah, these are, I don't think going to be terribly surprising, particularly the first two. So cardio health talks about that in terms of the ability to do long, steady endurance tasks, and then short bursts that, you know, have you breathing heavily, have your heart really thumping, the ability to, to build in both of those areas is really important. So what you probably hear referred to in all sorts of fitness things as zone two cardio, where you're engaging in cardio, where... You could talk, but to have a full sentence conversation would be really, really uncomfortable. You know, you're not feeling like a deep muscle burn. You're not just sucking air. 
whether that's riding a bicycle, a jog, even a brisk walk, depending on where you're at, doing those sorts of things to build a base of endurance. Uh, and he says it does all kinds of things, right? It not just helps you have better cardiovascular health, but it actually prevents these chronic diseases. It trains your body how to generate energy when you need it, et cetera, et cetera. And then in terms of the VO2 max training, he talks about you should go four minutes at about as fast as you can sustain for all four of those minutes and then slow down and repeat that four to six times about once a week. So you should have one day a week where you're pushing yourself, where you're breathing hard. I think a useful caveat there is, again, he talks about how this is about treating the people, right? This is about treating each individual person. And so he has the the kind of obligatory, you should talk to your doctor before you do this sort of thing and know where you're at and what what is pushing yourself. But the idea is you should push yourself so that you really do feel the challenge of the cardio work at least once a week. Um, in terms of strength, he just talks about the the decline of muscle mass how your, your amount of muscle tends to peak in your late 20s, early 30s, and then declines fairly, you know, gradually, but then it can particularly drop quickly for women going through menopause. And so to the extent that people can get ahead of that, that's pretty helpful. And again, just sort of basic strength training stuff. I don't think there's anything in that book that isn't what you would find everywhere else in terms of advice for just like, you should lift some weights. And, and what that looks like might look different for different people, but he, he suggests that a few times a week, you pick up heavy things and put them back where you found them. And then the last thing is stability. And, and he has an entire chapter dedicated to this, really in terms of the longevity piece. He talks about the rates of people falling and, and the likelihood of something like, I think, a broken hip. If you break your hip after the age of 65, your mortality over the next year is something like 50%. Like half of people over 65 who fall and break a hip do not last a year after that. And so again, the goal is to prevent those kinds of things from happening. And so he has a bunch of discussion about stability work. And, you know, a lot of that boils down to stepping onto and off of things and maintaining enough balance, strengthening the feet. Talks about how Americans in particular wear our shoes everywhere. And so the muscles in your feet don't have to do near as much work. And so if you just, you know, little things like walk around without your shoes on as much, but then he has a, a bigger exercise program that people who are interested could look into if they really want to focus on building stability. I really like the emphasis on stability because that's not something that we think about, right? Because I do think oftentimes appearance and vanity which, you know, is okay for humans, right? (laughs) Motivates us to do things like exercise. And when that is what's motivating us to do these things, we may not think about something like stability because stability just doesn't seem that sexy, right? (laughs) So I like the idea of thinking about stability as a really important exercise goal because it's going to offer you all sorts of strength and support and a foundation as you age so that Absolutely. the things that do matter to you as you get older, you'll have the foundation there for them. So I really right. appreciate that. It's not just you know not falling, which is obviously important. But he talks about like core strength and things like that. And 
it's it's not as much in this book, but I'd read elsewhere like the percentage of of people age sixty and over that basically can't get up off the floor. Right, if they're sitting down, they just can't stand back up. But they're still physically able enough that they can do a lot of things. But they're just not going to get down onto the floor because that's going to be really challenging, right? And so you know, again, talking about things like. Do you want to be able to sit on the ground and play with your grandkids and, and get up after that without somebody having to help pick you up? Things like that, that you go, oh, that's that's stuff that right now I just take for granted. But 20 years from now, I'd like to be able to sit down on the ground and get back up without assistance. Yeah. And you're, you're stuck living with me and you weigh like twice as much as I do. So for those of you listening, my husband's like 6'6". And I am not. So he he is a little bit of a bigger human than I am. So let's talk a little bit about diet and nutrition. Uh, what does what should we be focusing on in terms of diet and nutrition as we think about approaching health from the standpoint of longevity? Yeah, I was actually really interested in this because it seems like so much of current conversations are about diet. Current health conversations happen around diet. And he does have a pretty, like many people do, scathing assessment of what Americans eat. He calls it the standard American diet, the SAD, and points to, according to the FDA, the number one most eaten food category is something called grain-based desserts, which, as you might imagine, probably isn't super helpful. It's it's a lot of yeah processed wheat stuff that you can make in a bar and put in a wrapper and put a bunch of preservatives in. But what's interesting here is he's he's very adamant that we don't know near as much about what makes for a healthy diet as people like to assume that we do, that that actually nutrition studies are often pretty bad, right? There's two ways you can do it. You can do them in animals where you can perfectly control every variable and make sure that they do exactly the thing and get exactly the amount that they're supposed to. But then you have to try to figure out how close a mouse is to a human in terms of their diet. Or alternatively, you can test humans who are notoriously bad judges of how much they ate and maybe aren't going to tell you if they accidentally snuck a bite of cheesecake or whatever it may be. And so his suggestion is that we actually know a lot less than diet gurus would tell us about what makes for a healthy diet. What we do know and probably can can fairly reliably count on is that most of us should probably eat less than we do. There seems to be a lot of evidence in animals and to some extent human observational trials that basically if you eat less, you live longer within reason. That that at least a somewhat somewhat less food, some reduction there reduces insulin release. And so it makes your body more effectively utilize the insulin that it does release something called mTOR activation, which is a sort of growth activation of the body. Basically, what it comes down to is most of us have all kinds of access to food. It's kind of a unique problem in human history that we can access more food than we could possibly eat year round. And the human body isn't really evolved for that. But what I liked about how he talks about diet and that is he's less concerned with again, aesthetics or or appearances, things like that. He says, if you have some fat over your skin, that's he's not as concerned with that, subcutaneous fat. 
but he's adamant that basically your body has a certain amount of that it can store. And after that, it starts storing it inside around your organs, particularly in your liver, things like that. And that has a variety of fairly catastrophic health effects. And so the goal should be for most of us should just be like a slight reduction in the amount of food we eat for some people, depending on their health, maybe a, a more steep reduction and that you should try to make sure that you're getting a sufficient amount of protein. But if you're doing those things, he doesn't, he doesn't go in too much depth about like, oh, you should eat this kind of fat instead of that kind of fat. You should hit this exact set of, of macros or micros or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Eat a little bit less, make sure you're getting your protein. He brought up a term that I'd never heard of a, a Japanese term that I'm not even going to try to say but that is the term for when we eat because we're bored that basically loosely translates to lonely mouth. And I read that and I was like, Oh my goodness, I totally do that. The kids are like in the bathtub, you'll be upstairs. And I just like walk down and I just like eat something out of habit and or boredom while I'm listening to a book or reading or something. And, and I realize like that is that's legit lonely mouth. Lonely mouth. Well, okay. Speaking of kids in the bathtub and bedtime, Sleep is something that he talks about. And I want to know about this because I feel like as I age, my sleep gets funkier and funkier. And so I want to know how I can have that sweet, glorious sleep. What do I need to know about sleep and longevity? Yeah, sleep is unsurprisingly super important for longevity in a variety of ways. It, it actually affects kind of all of those, the, the four horsemen diseases that he talks about, the heart disease, cancer, type two diabetes, and neurodegenerative diseases. It has a pretty clear effect on all of them. Basically, if you're not getting enough sleep, your risk of all of those things rises in different ways. So chronic, chronic sleep deprivation, you know, less than seven hours a night, and at least one pretty big study was associated with lower immunity, more likelihood of heart attack, metabolic dysfunction, hormone problems, cognitive problems, both in terms of memory and likelihood to develop Alzheimer's. That's bad for metabolism. Like it's just this huge list of really horrible things that happen to you if you're not getting enough sleep. And he also points out that for a lot of people, especially like after you have kids, you can actually get used to being chronically sleep deprived and you don't really realize that you're chronically sleep deprived and those you know sort of long-term really adverse health effects maybe you don't you know, you're not feeling those acutely right you're just like oh i'm a little tired but this is just kind of how i feel and after you do that for long enough you just think that's how you feel as it turns out it shouldn't be um, the thing that i liked about this chapter the first you know the the, the chapters on exercise on nutrition really are tied to again, dealing with individual people, treating the person, not a, a disease, so to speak. And so what you do for exercise, what you do for diet is going to look a lot different based on your starting point. That kind of isn't as much the case for sleep, right? Like you may have a life that isn't conducive to sleep and that may be a challenge, but in terms of the exercise regimen that a person should go on might look radically different. To sleep better, it's pretty predictable, the things you should do. He talks about not drinking alcohol. He says he'll, he'll have a, a glass of wine now and then, but just like he knows that's not a good thing. He's just sort of against alcohol, largely for its effect on sleep and metabolism. 
avoiding food within three hours of bed and that actually being a little bit hungry when you go to bed is probably a good thing. I struggle with that one, by the way. Avoiding screens for two hours before bed, avoiding anything that's anxiety producing for the last hour you're awake, which he particularly talks about social media and kind of thinking about work, right? Don't do that fun thing that I think we all do where you, you start to think about what, what, what are the work things you're going to accomplish tomorrow. And so he just says, stop thinking about all of that for at least the last hour so that you're more likely to fall asleep. Repeatedly talks about light blocking curtains, making sure that you have a really dark space. And then the last one, which I thought this information is, is out there, but he makes a pretty nice case for it, is having a fixed wake up time. That if you're tired, go to bed earlier, but get up at the same time every single morning to, to the extent that you're able and so keeping that wake up time really fixed and and if you need a nap, if you need to go to bed early, fine, but you're getting up at, at six or seven or whatever, the same time every single day. Going back to the don't be anxious before you go to sleep thing, one that's kind of funny because when you're anxious, it's you're like, I, I don't know how to control that. But I do like, you know, thinking about how can you how can you make sure, for example, that you're not going onto social media if that's what makes you anxious? And one of the things that I really like about having a planning habit is that I don't feel like I have to do that planning right before I go to bed. I can say to myself, hey, Danielle, put this aside because you have a practice in place that in the morning you can get anxious about it. <laughs> and so I do think that it's been helpful for me to know that I have places, containers, if you will, where I can ruminate on things if I want to. And then I do think that's helpful in terms of me thinking about sleep, but sleep is so important and it can be so hard to get regularly, especially with kiddos. So I really appreciate that. Are there any other things that we should know that emerge from this book? I mean, he has a, a entire other chunk on emotional health, and that's really, it's much more autobiographical. He's talking about his own experience and journey, uh, and certainly like, I don't know, he's kind of a bro-y sort of guy, and so like good for him for being a bro that talks about like having feelings and emotions and needing to go to therapy to work through things, but I don't know that there's a ton there that like you should pick up and run with, but it I do think he makes a really nice case that there's not there's not a ton of reason to just want more years for the sake of more years. That the goal really ought to be what is the life I want? How do I want to be spending whatever time I get? Obviously, you, know, you can do everything right and, and sometimes fall ill or have an accident or whatever. But really thinking about an alignment of of kind of yeah purpose and and what brings you happiness. How do you want to spend your hours? And then how do you build plans around your your exercise, around your sleep, around your diet, and, and how you take care of yourself mentally, emotionally, to make sure that whatever time you get, you're really able to use in a way that, that brings you joy and fulfillment. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing with us this really a holistic and purpose-based approach to thinking about health. For those of you that are interested, Check out the book Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity by Peter Atea and Ryan. Thank you so much for sharing your 
your insights with us. Thank you. If this podcast has inspired you, guided you, or just made you laugh, the number one way that you can thank me is by leaving a written review for the show over on Apple Podcasts. I'm seriously tickled every time that I hear from you all, so pop onto Instagram and follow Plan Go Plan and digital message me. I want to say hello. I want to geek out about all things planning and goal setting. Keep sensing the possibilities, y'all.